This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Owens, along with the full gang here, Ben Collins, Zach. And so um, we're, we're still in COVID lockdown land, um, along with everyone else just trying to trying to survive and, and get through all of this. And so we figured time to, to really start churning out podcasts. So we've done, we've done quite a few. Uh, we just had the Chanda Plan um, folks uh, podcast. Uh, I think that was what, April, the first week of April came out, which was super cool. If you're interested in spinal cord injury and blood flow restriction, they're kind of one of the first clinics um, that's, that's piloting some work with, a, with that out there. And, and, and also just amazing, amazing people. Um, and then we're going to have uh, Heather Milligan, who's out at Elite um, Ortho in LA. She's tons of high-end um, uh, athletes as well as, as regular folks and has been doing BFR for a long time. She's got some really cool um, stuff, not only from research that's come out, but also what she's doing there. The, the Rams, uh, Los Angeles Rams are going to a deep dive of doing butt flow restriction with football, which that one's going to be excellent for anyone that's interested um, and, and how it's being done in athletics, especially high-end athletics. And today, we're going to take it all the way down to, to cell swelling, which is something that you hear a lot of with blood flow restriction. You see it in the literature. Um, we talk about it in our course. It's something that we do. There's other names for it, passive BFR, um, which we'll go into maybe what the differences are and why people might be, be changing the names of it. But we're going to take a deep, deep dive into cell swelling today. But first. Um, fellas, what's up? How's it going? What's up? How's it going? So everyone's stuck at home. No more traveling. I hope. Yeah. I better not hear you guys are out flying around or doing anything. You're going to be like one of the NBA guys I've been talking to. You know, they're telling their players, you're on lockdown. If we see you on Instagram in a gym or working out with a trainer or something, you're in trouble. So you guys are all on lockdown. Because when we're ready to go, y'all are all going to be flying nonstop every other day. Um, we're allowed to do that. So. <laughs> so we talk, you know, we talk all the time with each other, but anyways, how, how's life, man? Everyone's surviving. Yeah. Trying to, trying to figure out this, uh, new home life and figure out how, um, you know, teachers do it and entertain four-year-olds that keep them interested in anything related to schoolwork. So, I don't know what's harder, like just having a four-year-old, which is hard enough, or having like an elementary school girl and a junior high school girl, and we're trying to be a teacher at the same freaking time, you know? Um, it's, that's been a, a total nightmare. So. Yeah, it's, we're having, having a newborn right now. I can't even imagine trying to work at home, having, having kids. I mean, Kyle's got a freaking dog, and that's it. He can barely he do that. He drives me crazy. <laughs> he thinks he gets to eat all day long because I'm home. Yeah. Well, sorry. My phone's going off. Well, man, I mean, you got it easy. Yeah. Well, Hey, I got slobber and hair everywhere in this dang place and the hair is definitely not from my head. So yeah, sure. yeah we, we know that, Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, we might just start taking Bryson and doing what you do with Winchester. Just, you know, put him outside and close the door and yeah. let him entertain himself. Hey, and Bryson can't bark so loud that he disturbs the neighbors anyhow. Uh, yeah. My dog goes outside and he's like lighting up the whole neighborhood because somebody moves a trash can somewhere. You haven't been around Bryson very much then. I mean, I know well, you've been around him a little bit, but. 
Well, his head's about as big as Winchester's. I do know that. That kid's a beast. <laughs> yeah. Tank. Back, how are you doing, man? Are you surviving? You're doing good, yeah. Hang, hanging in there. Um, Not in the to... clinic at all, right? You guys are still shut down for another week at least. That's, that's right. Yeah, so we're shut down for another week and then um, kind of game plan from there, kind of see what goes on. But, um, yep. I feel like this isolation is Zach's happy place, man. He feels like he's yeah. back, you know, scouting some target that he might have back to take down place, or yeah. something. Like, this is great for a sniper, man. He's like, got, I, I hate people. This is good. He's just we should all be out the neighbors making sure he's got all the ingress and egress covered. <laughs> so there was – there were, this was a couple of years ago. I had a, a patient, and, um, like, one of the things that – like, I, I don't get into a whole lot of discussion, like, personal things with patients and whatnot. So, like, my joke is always they go ask me, like, these questions, and I'm like, that's a rather personal question. I'd rather not discuss it. And so this, this girl one time goes, um, so what do you, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you like to do? And I was like, dude, that's kind of personal. You know, I'd like to just keep it professional with you. And, uh, then like she, she started to push back a little bit and she's like, well, what do you, what are your hobbies? You know, what do you like to do? And I said, I said, I just like to sit in a dark room by myself. And, uh, I said, as long as, as long as I have Wi-Fi and a TV, I said, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> So the the psychotherapist, um, she's like, "Can I get another therapist, please?" Yeah, I know, it's only I know. slightly different than Kyle's fantasy land that he talks about all the time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've heard Kyle talk about more that he really doesn't like people, and uh, I don't. No, I definitely do not. This, He's been practicing yeah. social distancing for a long time. I, I have. Well, I mean, I've been pr in practice for, what, 16 years. And the only thing people have proven to me is they're just not as trustworthy as I once thought they were. Like, I, you know, it seems like at some point they all kind of disappoint you a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, you are, you are out in California. So, I know. Well, you know, hey, we'll, yeah, this is true. You got you to gotta kind of consider the contextual clues. Well, my hobby is um, I, I cut my hair for the first time, so I just shaved the sides <laughs> off. We can tell. And I look like an uh, old uh, Patrick Mahomes hairdo Johnny right now. Johnny Exotic over here. <laughs> my hair grows. So I have poof, I like a Brillo pad for hair, and it grows extremely fast on the sides. So I was saying, man, I had to open my, my hat up one size already, and then the curls were sticking out the sides of my hat, so I looked like a bad... Um, version of um what, what did i say the the actor earlier i said his name i can't even remember oh billy crystal oh, like yeah, freaking billy, billy crystal walking around yeah. and so um yeah i decided to just go at it and what i figured found out is i could shave the left side really good because i use my right hand and then the <laughs> other side i couldn't so i took giant chunks out of one side and the other so, um, so we're, we're like we're like in hairville in our house right now because my wife and daughters they have a bunch of curly hair and so they are just like, my daughters are dyeing each other's hair with this like, this dye kits they got that you wash out. And so the other day I was trying to make my daughters do chores because um, they're just freaking driving us crazy. And so I had my youngest daughter, I told her to go clean the pool um, and she's never really done it. I taught her how, and I'm in the garage and I hear the biggest scream of my life. So I come running out and she freaking fell in the pool. <laughs> um, like off the deep end so I, <laughs> she had all this blue dye that she'd just done it her sister had done her hair and she's we, i watched it on the ring it's the funniest thing ever you see her go in and then it's like she's freaking jesus running across the water she got out of that pool so fast because for one it's freezing and she's freaked out but all the blue dye was just like coming down her face so 
she looked like um, like, like Billie Eilish. No, but no, like, like, fucking uh, uh, Mel Gibson from that movie. Um, Braveheart. So that's been our favorite thing is watching like ring rehabs of, of Kylie hurting herself outside. She took a, she took a soccer ball right into the gut of her sister the other day and went down. So, um, Zach, Zach and I, Zach and I are about to get, get busy on working on our barbecue and, and smoking skills, right? Zach, we're going to, I just ordered brisket last night, and, and so get ready for your social media feeds to be blown up with left brisket getting smoked. You ordered Wagyu brisket. Right? I ordered some Wagyu brisket. I went, I, I went for it. I mean, American I, I was, Wagyu? I guess yeah, that's it's American good, Wagyu. Right? Yeah. 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 Snake River Farms. I was, I was just saying that uh, it's amazing how the, the economy seems to be tanking, but people are just going out and spending a, a crap ton of money on these like, expensive meats. I mean... Right, I mean, like $150 for a brisket. Yeah, yeah. it's somewhere in that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, look, it'll be worth it. And it's all fat, dude. It's just going <laughs> yeah. yeah. to melt away. <laughs> You're going to yeah. be left with like one pound. Yeah. yeah. Y'all were talking yeah. about this, and, and I, you know, was telling my wife, I was like, I need to get a smoker so I can, I can learn how to do this because yeah. now's the time. And, and that got yeah, shot right. down really quick because yeah. I, I'm apparently not allowed to spend money on things like that. Yeah. Well, she's going to benefit from this. I mean, I, she'll get to I, eat the, I, I, the delicious smoked positives. meats that you will you will cook up for her. Yeah. Again, I, if I, all I, you have to feed is a dog, that's your only other mouth to feed. You know, you're much more liberal yeah. on uh, your <laughs> wagon. I haven't been, I haven't been traveling around. You know, the bars yeah. are shut down, so I'm I got a little bit of extra cash to spend on some really high quality meat. So yeah, going down at the Kimbrel household real soon. By the time right, well, this podcast drops, it will. I want to see it on social media, man, what a Wagyu brisket looks like. I'm, I'm sure I've had it here in, in some of these highfalutin barbecue places in Texas, oh, yeah. you know. You can't get normal barbecue anymore. It all, it all has to be like crazy over the top nowadays. Well, here. I tell you what you can do, Johnny, is um, if you go, if you really want to, Costco will sell you a case of untrimmed full packer brisket that's prime. And, and, it's, and it, you can get it a lot of times for about, three bucks a pound or something. So you might drop like $250, $300 on a case, but you're getting six, seven briskets. So yeah. and that'll last you a while. I have a picture in my phone because uh, I did it. And, and the briskets are like stacked, you know, up in my freezer. And I thought, well, I need to get a, a, like a, a standalone freezer to put in the garage just so I can have an infinite Dude, supply yeah. of brisket. But. I live with two little girls in my yeah. life. I, there is zero room in our freezer for anything <laughs> besides popsicles. like popsicles <laughs> and pizza <laughs> and whatever else. Um, they, they need a daddy in there, fridge so. in the man cave. So you can put know, it out in that, that little one. greenhouse out back, man. Let's just turn that whole thing into a smoker house. It's, I need something for it. It's not doing anything yeah. right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and start getting into this. So in other updates, um, even though everything seems to be shutting down or slowing down. We still have stuff coming out. So a lot of our work that we worked on all last year, um, we're starting to see the fruitions of it. So we just had a new paper come out um, in IJSPT, International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy. Came out, what, yesterday, I think. Yep, yesterday. Link, yep, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, so um, this was with Dr. Kahalan and his lab down in Miami and myself. Um, and it was the effects of aerobic exercise training with and without BFR on aerobic capacity and, and healthy young adults, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So this is probably the, the deepest dive of uh, systematic review and meta 
that was done on this. And so um, I encourage you to, to look at it because it's kind of, if you went to our CSM talk, this was the paper that we ended um, our talk on. And basically, you know, it found out what, what we expect. Aerobic exercise with BFR does significantly better than aerobic exercise um, without BFR. But um, high intensity or, or, or more intense exercise with BFR doesn't do any better an intense exercise without BFR. So exactly what I've been saying this whole time, you know, it, it beats low level every time, but if you can do high intensity, just do high intensity with resistance exercise or with aerobic exercise. And there's a Michigan paper, I think Ben, we got a blog coming out about it that did um, high, high uh, heavy load BFR exercise and, and heavy load without BFR and, and really didn't see any differences between the groups, which we would expect. Yeah. Um, so if you're a knucklehead in the gym, you're lifting heavy, you, there's no reason to freaking occlude. Or if you're riding a bike and trying to do sprints, there's no reason to occlude. Or like we saw, if you're freaking doing box jumps, don't put stupid tourniquets on your legs while you're doing a box <laughs> jump, you freaking idiot. So. Did you <clears throat> see that that's one video of the guy with the barbell jumping up onto a box? And there's a on top of the box, there was a an upside down Bosu, Bosu ball. That's the one. I think he had bands on his legs, like, too. I think oh, those are just he, resistance bands, like you know, like those crossed bands that go between your legs. It looks a lot like it, but I, well, I just don't understand what people think. It, they just think they make it super hard those, to do, and this must do something. It's it looks cool for the gram, and plus, people it's are waiting for the train wreck of them hitting the floor with that. That's all I'm there for. I want to see that dude bite it. Like I <laughs> love seeing people fall down. Y'all know me and the cues. We love seeing that. Like it's entertaining to see people wipe out. Like if I had seen your girl, your daughter fall into the pool, Johnny, I'd have lost my mind. Dying. I'll send you the ring. It's pretty funny. I yeah, want to see it. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she got when when my daughter got hit in the stomach. So I set up a, a little, two little soccer goals and I said, all right, we're going to play soccer. And so Kendall, the older one, she gets the ball right off the bat, dribbles up like five yards and then just takes a shot and smacks Kylie in the stomach. It's hard as you, I mean, it's like that. And you hear this, like we watched it a million times on ring. You hear this weird, like Kylie just does this like, makes this noise. And she goes down, she does this weird, like her ankles kind of bend and she goes down. Then she goes to her knees. Then she puts like the one arm down. And then she slowly goes down making that noise. It sounded like a weird well, like going down. And then she's just laying there, like in the fetal <laughs> position. And so for like days, all you could hear from Kendall's room was, Kendall replaying the video for all her friends. <laughs> you hear Kylie yell, Kendall, stop showing me getting hurt. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, they're hilarious, man. They're hard not to watch. But, but that guy's video worked because like all four of us watched it. You know, yeah, so yeah, exactly. It, it, it served its purpose. Yeah. Well, I'm so bored. I might try something like that. So it will be an epic fail, Kyle. You'll see two Achilles go. Um, I tried to run the other day and I felt a twinge in my Achilles. And I was like, oh, hell no. I'm not going to go to the hospital with the torn Achilles. I, I will be a non-op in a cam boot. So we're going down. Anyways, that IGSPT paper is, is out. I don't think it is. Um, open access, but if you want to get it, reach out to us, we can send you um, um, a copy of it. And, and it's, it is pretty interesting because one thing that hasn't really been studied much or really at all is, is what about the, the lung or pulmonary capacity? Is there effects on the lung? And, and um, Dr. Kahalen's group at CSM made an interesting case and they're kind of already trying to study 
are, are there things that we should be looking at from, from the lungs perspective, especially in the injured population? And that was a timely talk because now um, I'm part of what's called the PACER project. And so this is set up by the cardiovascular and pulmonary section of the APTA, kind of a bigger scope of this international group that's got together. Um, and what PACER stands for is post-acute COVID exercise and rehab. And so we're getting kind of experts across fields. Um, it's a really large group and going to put out webinars and it's going to be on the APTA's website of basically what do we need to understand with COVID, um, especially post-ventilatory because it's, it's pretty devastating. I've never really looked into that literature and I'm getting all sorts of updates from the, from the consensus panel of, of how much it takes people down, how much post-traumatic, I mean, the PTSD is worse post-ventilatory than it is from what we saw in the wars and the disability rates look like they might be, be worse than, well, are worse than, than what we saw from the war. So we'll, we'll put it out to everyone, but these in the next two to six weeks, we're gonna have all these free webinars from experts around the world of, of basically consensus statements of what we should start looking at um, for, for COVID patients and then and, and the ongoing crisis. And then we're gonna have a, po a physical therapy journal paper um, separately that's gonna come out of, these are maybe novel, treatments. And one of the treatments is maybe looking at blood flow restriction in the post-acute setting, as well as maybe even in the acute setting, um, which will take us into the cell swelling today, because those are the kind of patients where we look at this kind of cell swelling. So you guys want to, one of you guys want to talk about like what you think a good definition of cell swelling or passive BFR is, what the whole concept is. Yeah. So um, when we talk about cell swelling or this, the passive approach to BFR, you know, in a very simplest general term, it's putting a, a tourniquet on, on a limb. Uh, predominantly, it's going to be the lower extremity. And then we alternate periods of ischemia or cuff inflation and cuff deflation uh, with very minimal to no um, load with that. Um, so, and really in very general mechanistic terms, we're really just looking to create a, a fluid shift um, into the muscle and to see what kind of an effect that we can have on that. And, and it got, and I think Jeremy Lenicky really, we can credit him with coining the term self-swelling because he's the one who really started using it in his hypothesis papers. And, um, it, and so it is primarily thought of, it's what you do in the absence of exercise. When you look at the studies, at least, and mm -hmm. so they're saying, this is what, if you could not do any exercise at all, can you put a tourniquet on and spare muscle tissue, essentially, by pushing fluid into the muscle tissue? Right. right. Yep. And so it, I, I think now, so I think we can, I don't, I don't know for sure if he's the one, but we can credit Stephen Patterson with this term passive BFR. Um, he's the one that's been using it the most that I, I hear. And, and we did our CSM talk several years ago in DC, Stephen and I, and, and his was on passive BFR applications. And so part of the shift is, okay, it seems like if you get a tourniquet on and do almost nothing, we spare muscle. We'll go through the studies that have looked at this, but maybe it isn't just cell swelling. Maybe it's the decrease in muscle breakdown through other pathways. So we've talked before about ischemic preconditioning and remote ischemic preconditioning. It seems to spare tissues. And so part of, I think of getting away from saying cell swelling is, well, that might not be the only mechanism of why this works. And passive BFR, you're, you're kind of taking in, it's just passive, but there's a million other mechanisms we don't really know about. Um, 
right? I mean, is that is that kind of what you guys would think if yeah. you say, Kyle, you said you didn't like the term. Well, I just, I don't like passive BFR because I feel like it, it inclines people to think you're not using exercise, which is right. generally speaking, not the case. Uh, we right. want to, we want to get the muscle tissue that we're trying to have an effect on as active as we can, whether that be with neuromuscular stem, active assistive range of motion, pedaling a bike, whatever, whatever it is, isometric exercises, any kind of activity we want to get going, we want to, we want to do. And so I, I just think that that, but, but, but the, the point of it being called passive, um, allowing there to be other mechanistic reasons to be considered is I think is an important point, Johnny, because if we just say cell swelling, then it's almost like we're not acknowledging the fact that we've disrupted blood flow into the limb. We've right. created some hypoxia. Yeah. Is it a hypoxia thing? Is it, yeah. is it an IPC thing? We don't know. Is there a humoral response? Um, you know, like we see with some of the IPC stuff. Yeah. So, and, and that's the key point we want to keep saying, and we always say it in the courses, this is, we're going to talk about what cell swelling is and the mechanisms we think behind it. There's almost never a time in rehab where you can't do something. You can do it isometric, you know, or, or, you know, I know Steven and Luke, they're always like, at least put E-stem on, you know, your target muscle, get a little bit of a contraction if you can't. Now, the only time where you wouldn't probably be able to do exercise is in the ICU. I'm on mechanical ventilation. I'm intubated. I'm in a coma. Um, and we'll talk about the Brazilian paper that looked at that. So that really is a passive application for sure, because those patients are basically under sedation and they can't do anything which is fascinating because if this really, you know, is doing something, then, then that is at least a mechanism that goes after muscle loss in the ICU patient. Right. Um, so yeah. let me, let me just go ahead, man. I was just say, I mean, I think, you know, Zach, when we talked about this before, you know, brought up a, a good point and Kyle kind of alluded to it. It's, you know, trying to isolate the mechanisms is essentially just proof of concept of does this tourniquet by itself actually have an effect in the absence of exercise. So yeah. presenting it that way from a scientific standpoint, but not from an application standpoint for us. And I, and I think that's yeah. when we go through the history here, um, we can kind of look at that timeline of like, okay, yes, it did. It had an effect. It had an effect. Okay. Yes. Did we see a plasma volume shift? Yes. Okay. And now what does it start to mean? But I cut you off before you say something, Zach. No, I was just going to agree with Ben. I mean, but I think that leads that what Ben said leads into the the history. And then as we talk about mechanisms and application, it, it's, that's, it's a good point. So the history, you know, you can kind of follow a timeline here, which I always like to do is go back to the very start. And, and really, if you want to credit someone understanding, you know, what happens when a cell is hydrated or dehydrated would be Hossinger. Ben, am I saying it right? Hossinger. I, I was going to, Try and, try and be a smart ass and chime in, but I don't have anything for you this time. So <laughs> That's the Rosetta Stone version. <laughs> uh, uh, you failed at being a smart ass once again. So <laughs> congratulations, man. Um, Dieter yeah, Hossinger. Yeah. So he, in the 90s, really started looking at, at what happens um, when cells are in either a hydrated or dehydrated state and actually what makes a cell either hydrated or dehydrated. And it was mostly done on, on liver cells, um, but it, it looks like there's translation. And so people are, are kind of taking a, a cell as a cell and, it, and, and even Hossinger's paper, you know, he points out that he thinks this is what would happen with skeletal muscle tissue at all as, as well. Um, but basically 
once a cell swells up, you have an increase in anabolic signaling. Once a cell decreases in swelling, you have an increase in catabolic signaling. If, if you look at just a real perfect, nice graph that he had in this original 1996 paper. So um, I know, Zach, you, you're Mr. Deep Dive and, and can really go hard on science and confuse all of us. But anything that you want to point out or you other guys want to point out from what Hosslinger's work kind of looked at? And also from like, what makes a cell swell? Why, why would you all of a sudden have a cell go from hydrated to dehydrated? Yeah, I think um, one of the big things that they point to is it's these, it's an ion shift and we can get into that when we talk about the mechanisms, but basically what happens is, is you have a, a disruption in, in the ions within the cell. And so ultimately sodium ends up coming in the cell. And when sodium comes in the cell, you have water that follows and potentially that's what drives the increase in cell swelling. It causes this hypoosmotic um, cell. And then from there, we get that, just like you said, a little bit of an anabolic signal um, and a, a little bit of a, an inhibition of catabolic sig signaling as well. Yeah. And, and so when you exercise, with or without BFR, you're building up muscle metabolites. So building up lactate and the, and the hydrogen ions and the byproducts of, of that metabolism, that creates a fluid shift because of the, the ion, ion exchange, basically, right? That's exactly it. Um, and there was a, a paper done in 1985 that looked at that under two different intensities of knee extensions. And so what, what they did was they biopsied the muscle fiber and then they looked at um, the amount of lactate in whole muscle, amount of lactate in the extracellular space of the muscle, and then uh, the amount of lactate intracellularly, intracellularly as well. Um, and they found that as the, in, as the intensity of the exercise increased, you had an increase in lactate um, in all three components with the greatest increase intracellularly. And then they also found that um, there was an efflux of potassium outside the cell and an influx of uh, sodium inside the cell and then an increase in um, the swelling aspect as well that kind of goes all hand in hand that um, that looks at lactate and that relationship between lactate metabolites with a swelling, a swelling response. So I have, I have a little, not to take us too far off on this you know, intro to the history here, but when we look at this passively and the fact that this swelling response happens, it doesn't really seem like we can attribute that to metabolites, right? Because we're not doing right. exercise. That's so right. it, it doesn't seem like, and, and I don't know that we have proof that this, this big ion shift is happening with passive tourniquet application. So, you know, reading that Hossinger paper, it, it, you know, they talked a lot about the osmotic gradients. And for me trying to think of this conceptually, you know, my, my brain goes to, you know, water filling a space, you know, thinking about high pressure to low pressure, you know, if there's something that's permeable and water can get through it, if there's a high pressure and a low pressure, we're going to see that shift to try and equalize the pressure. So maybe that's, you know. And so your, your point, Ben, would be we're increasing that, that pressure via the inflation of the tourniquet. And maybe right. at least in like the, the Kubota and Takarada and Linicky papers, it's, it's maybe the pumping action of the kind of like inflating it deflating it we're manipulating those pressures and right. fluid in which which of course with bfr and linking multiple exercises together we'd be manipulating both of those factors both this ion shift via this sort of shift towards anaerobic metabolism 
and then also this inflation and deflation and the tourniquet. Right. So the passive kind of leads more to the, you know, the, we'll get to it, but the venous side of things, you know, trapping more fluid in the limb, increasing pressure and just seeing a shift of fluid. But potentially, and, and what I would say then with that, uh, Ben, is with the tourniquet, and we'll get into the, the importance, why we think high pressure is important, um, specifically looking at the two Kubota papers, but on the arterial side, what you see is you create this hypoxic environment. And so when you create a hypoxic environment, the, um, the ion channels run off of an ATPase pump. So they require um, ATP, which is typically going to be aerobic respiration. But as you get into that ischemic event, it's going to turn into anaerobic respiration and you potentially lose the glycolytic substrates. And then that, that's, that, that pump no longer functions. And so with that, it creates that ion gradient where potassium now is going to leak out of the cell because there's a higher concentration inside the cell. So it goes down its concentration gradient and then or, uh, sodium, which is, has a higher concentration on the outside of the cell, is going to leak into the cell. Um, so they're, they're very well. And, and what I would say is we don't fully know one way or the other. It's all kind of theoretical, just like what Johnny was saying, when we're basing a lot of this off of non-muscle tissue. Um, but the, the concentration gradients of ions can be manipulated in an ischemic event. Yeah, and I think the important point with everything is it's probably both, you know. So there is probably an ion exchange. There's not as much without exercise but there's probably also a definite fluid shift that's being forced. And, and then that, you know, Jeremy's paper um, that we'll talk about, I think that was his, his point too. There's not, I'm not measuring a lot of metabolite buildup here. I might not be able to capture because it, it might be so small and we're just not getting it with this measure. But I think that we're seeing either a reperfusion effect um, or we're just seeing that it's being forced from, from pressure of, of the fluid being in there. And, and, and you see it. So if you do exercise with BFR, you see these people and they, they get this real swollen limb effect and you take tourniquet off and it's still there. Some people last longer than others, but you see also if you just put tourniquets on people for multiple bouts, you get this real pump swollen effect. And if you release it, um, it's still there. So it's not just venous congestion where the fluid just goes back. Um, but, but yeah, I think we can't discount that hypoxia does create an ionic exchange. It's probably, it's not nearly as much as, as lifting, um, or adding right. resistance exercise to it. So Hossinger really, the, the point of that one is just to, to, to give props to an OG, um, who basically was the first one to start saying, Hey, if you, if, if swell, if swells, if cells swell, you're increasing an anabolic cascade. You can maybe increase mTOR, increase MAPK, all of the things that would, would be needed to, to, to not go into catabolism and start breaking down. And this might be, again, IPC. Maybe that is why we don't see breaking down because you're swelling and you're slowing down catabolism. Um, and that's why we're sparing tissues whenever we create this hypoxic event, right? So the next, then in 2000, is the first BFR paper said okay well can we just put tourniquets on um, and diminish atrophy in in the thigh muscles after surgery so this was uh, on ACL um, post-op ACLs Takarada so they started it uh, three three days out from ACL surgery and did it to the 14th day um, and, and they did it twice a day so it's pretty high volume 9 a.m. in the morning 2 p.m. in the afternoon 
um, five minutes on, uh, and, and, and they, they just used basically kind of an arbitrary pressure, which, which we hate, um, and three minutes off. Um, and they did that for what, five rounds, I think, right guys? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what they measured in this one was: Did you spare cross-sectional area? So it was a randomized trial. So you had a control group and, a, and a, an experimental group. So anybody want to kind of touch on what the results were and, and what your thoughts are on on this study? What was good about it and what was bad about it? And also realizing this was done almost two decades ago, so this was really early on trying to understand the cell swelling. Yeah, I mean, it was it was good because it was a, you know, essentially it was just a work match. I mean, very simple tourniquet versus no tourniquet. You know, as the you described the twice daily, five rounds of five minutes with the three minutes in between. Um, pressure was progressed in a, a strange way. They talked about increasing by 10 millimeters of mercury, you know, at, depending on the status of recovery. So not real sure what that means, but the average for the high pressure toward the end was around 240 millimeters of mercury. It was hard to figure out how they do it. Yeah, I mean, and so it, it, obviously the pressure that they use seemed to be effective. So whatever that pressure was, it seemed to be adequate to see some changes. And the main differences was in the quad cross-sectional area. It is basically about half as much atrophy in the quad over the first two weeks post-ACL. Yeah. yeah. And, the, so, and but, the preservation of strength there in that, in that study too. Did they do strength in that? No, one? they didn't do strength in this one. Because it was one. just two weeks. It, yeah. yeah, it was an ACL study, Kyle. So yeah. It, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't so test the, the interesting, interesting thing to me was that they didn't see the same preservation in the the hamstring, and there was no difference between groups in the in the hamstrings, um, but the quad had this this really significant preservation, so about half as much loss. Well, they they went into the, the they think they might have had an imaging problem on the hamstring. Um, I think they did in this paper or someone that I talked to mentioned it, they were mostly hamstring grafts, I believe. And so they had signal issues um, with trying to see post-op um, on, on the MRI or, or they use MRI, right? Was it MRI or ultrasound? I thought that one was MRI. It's MRI. MRI. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was MRI. Yeah, yeah. Third and 14 day MRI, yep. So that might be it, but the quad for sure. So the quad lost 21%. Um, basically in the, in the regular uh, standardized care and only about 9.4% just by putting the tourniquet on in the morning and the afternoon. And, and we'll point out again, this was true passive cell swelling. There was no exercises at all. That's right. Um, so this was, this was really pretty controlled for that. So that's the first one. Um, anything else you guys want to point out on that or move on to the- I'd like to point out that they did not look at strength in that study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good good Kyle yeah good yeah. thanks I'll keep it up now <laughs> yeah they didn't look at functional measures either Kyle no no <laughs> no functionals yeah no not, not two okay. weeks post up no okay. return to play in two weeks um, and then okay so next is we got a couple of healthy models that were done um, and kind of in what we talked about an anabolic resistance kind of model where you you immobilize one limb and, and you're able to, to compare uh, between groups. One group gets tourniquet, the other group doesn't, and it, and it was for two weeks. So this is Kubota done in 2007. So their aim of the present study was to compare the effects of periodic restriction of the blood flow to the lower extremities with those of isometric exercise on disuse muscular atrophy and weakness induced by immobilization and unloading. 
Um, and so this one, they used a higher pressure. So they started at, at 200 millimeters of mercury and they followed the same protocol. So uh, five minutes on, three minutes of rest, repeated five times and two sessions. Um, they used, a, and this, it's hard in these early papers to find out what tourniquets they use. They did use a, a surgical tourniquet from a Japanese surgical tourniquet company, Mizuho. So it was, um, you know, you, you can pretty much, it looks like it was a, like a microprocessed, so it was able to maintain pressure. And, and overall, the immobilized um, unloaded group, they both lost size. So in all these studies, you're not hypertrophying you're just slowing down atrophy when you're doing this kind of cell swelling protocol in the early, in, in the early phases here. Um, the control group lost significantly more, uh, more size compared to the BFR group. So you guys want to kind of go in deeper on what, what their results were and then what your thoughts are on this one. I'll, I'll take this one again. Um, so yeah, we, uh, same idea, five rounds of five. Um, they did this essentially anabolic resistance study, casted the ankle in neutral and had a non-weight bearing on one side for two weeks. Um, I, I like this one a lot because it was tourniquet only versus those isometrics. And they did three isometrics. They did a quad isometric, a hamstring isometric and a plantar flexion isometric. Mm -hmm. Uh, and everyone, you know, basically did this twice a day. Um, and so the isometrics, it was 20 reps with a five second hold, uh, for each one of those. And I don't have a projected intensity, uh, from that, but essentially the results were, um, preservation of knee extension strength was significantly better in the group that put the tourniquet on and just did that kind of cell swelling type application. Uh, and then, uh, you know, isometrics were better than the control group, but not really significantly. And I don't think it reached statistical significance. So, um, for, and there was better preservation of the thigh girth and the lower limb girth, uh, for the cell swelling group than there was for isometrics or control. So right. pretty interesting to say that just putting a tourniquet on and laying there while doing nothing is better than isometric exercise for strength and for size of the entire limb. So strength all the way down to the plantar flexors and the thigh muscles, size of the thigh muscles, as well as size of the calf muscle as well, or the lower leg muscle. So and they, complete they, preservation. They kind of tried to personalize the pressure a little bit. They looked at different pressures and some measure of what they were, were thinking was arterial occlusion. And, and it was, I forgot what they used. Um, so Shear wave. Pulse wave. Or, or pulse wave. Pulse wave. Pulse wave. Yeah. Yeah. And so they said, essentially, you know, at 200, it looked like, you know, no one had, had lost pulse wave. At 253 of the, uh, you know, 11 or so subjects looked like they had occlusion. At 300 millimeters of mercury, it looked like seven of the 11 had occlusion. So they decided on that 200 millimeters of mercury pressure, thinking that they wouldn't yeah. get full occlusion. So Higher pressures, but probably less than we use now, and also kind of a poor way of personalizing it, because you do that and then you still, you just kind of throw 200 at everybody. So, you know, one person's maybe getting 50%, another person's getting 70%, another person's getting 40%. Right. And they didn't change the pressure at all throughout the application. So there was no attempt to say, all right, did this pressure change? Are we getting occlusion at this you know, time point that's a weekend, you know, do we need to reassess that? So, um. and, and this one was the first one that said, okay, what about these other metabolite kind of byproducts? Do we see anything? So as you are 
building up those muscle metabolites and the muscle gets more acidic, um, typically you'll see growth hormone levels go up. And so they measure growth hormone in this one and it, it didn't go up at all. And so this was kind of the first paper to come around and say, we're, we're preserving muscle. It looks like through a cell swelling effect, um, but we are not seeing this increase in muscle metabolites in the absence of exercise that we can at least pick up. Um, there might be something there, but not high enough for them to pick up. Yeah. Right. Then go ahead. You got something else? No, I think you got it. Kubota did a second one then in 2010. Um, and this one was kind of following the exact same design. They changed it up a little bit, but they wanted to see, could you use a very low compressive force? So 50 millimeters of mercury, which is super low. Um, and we wouldn't expect to see as, as good of changes with this. They used the surgical tourniquet again, the Mizuho. Um, and in this one, they did not get as good of results as the higher pressure. Um, they saw results, but it was not as, as, um, as good as the other ones. And, and all their measurements across the board weren't significant. So I've kind of got it all pulled up here. Anyone have the results right in front of them? They can, they can kind of jive off. Yeah, thigh, thigh circumference was uh, decreased in both groups, no difference between groups. Their um, eccentric strength in the, for the quad as well as the plantar flexors at 60 degrees was significantly different, and that was the only strength measure for those two that was different between groups. Um, and then what was like real unique, Kyle and I had talked about this, was you almost get this like preservation out of the hamstring. So you had greater effects out of the hamstring um, than what they did out of the knee extensors, which is, this is the first paper to show that. Um, so, uh, eccentric at 60 degrees per second, as well as isometrically in the hamstring and then concentrically at 60 degrees per second, um, okay. were significantly different between in favor of the, the BFR group or the RBF group is how they, uh, yeah. termed it. <laughs> I, that made me happy when I saw RBF. Well, but they, they call it restriction of blood flow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we know everyone always, that's the typo. They always do RBF instead of BFR. I can't yeah. tell you how many papers I review that I pick up RBF is, is dropped in there on accident. <laughs> <laughs> throughout. Um, well, and I, here's some key points um, that I just kind of jotted down from their discussion. So the main finding of the study is that repeated muscle blood flow restriction at a low pressure uh, mitigated muscle weakness induced by mobilization and non-weight bearing. So they did see that it, there was some significance there. Um, but comparison with our data from previous reports that shows that a 50 millimeter uh, cuff pressure program will have a milder effect on muscle weakness induced by chronic unloading than a 200 millimeter cuff program. For example, our previous study using the same weight bearing protocol described less than a 5% decrease of muscle strength with the 200 millimeter cuff pressure, um, although um, 10 to 25% was observed in the control group. Um, and so basically, therefore, the level of blood flow restriction might be an important factor to prevent muscle weakness by repetitive blood flow restriction, especially for the quad. And it seems that a low cuff pressure program in contrast to the high pressure program might not be as effective for preventing muscle atrophy induced by chronic unloading. And so, good on them. They, they took their design and, and looked at it again. Let's see it at a different pressure. And like we've kind of seen across the board, these higher pressures, especially as the load gets lower, and we've put this out in some of our papers, 
the lower the load, the higher the pressure you might need. And so especially if you're doing no load, then you, you probably do need to have this higher pressure. That begs the question, does a cell swelling, true cell swelling protocol need to be 100%? Does yeah. it need to be IPC? Um, yeah. Especially if we say, okay, we're gonna do this COVID, I'm, I'm going now on the ventilator patients. Should we go there? And I think if you if you kind of reference back to like the the Natsume NMES paper and those sorts of things where loads were pretty light and they were able to see some adaptation, but the, but the yeah. pressure was rather high. Yeah, yeah. The the same with uh, Jamie Burr's paper. Yeah, um, who basically had individual serve as their own control, um, and strength was the greatest when you have a combination of the neuromuscular with uh, cell swelling but you still had about an 18 kilogram increase in isometric leg strength with just cell swelling alone. The cell, mm -hmm. the cell swelling pressure was at 220 millimeters of mercury, which they use nears, which is a, an infrared measure to look at kind of blood flow in the leg. And that was that full occlusion for those individuals. Right. Uh, and then the other thing that I'd say is we don't see the systemic increase in lactate. And so when, when they do blood draws for lactate, a lot of times it's a finger prick or it's coming out of the upper extremity. I'm just curious to know that when we create this ischemic event in the lower extremity, if we actually looked at and, and did a, a draw, say, out of the leg or mm -hmm. um, a, a, a biopsy of the muscle, do we get into how much lactate is, is there? And yeah. I, I would... Right. I would speculate that we actually will see an increase in metabolites when the, the draw is done where the occlusion's taken place. Especially if you have the high pressure. Yeah, because you right. see in the, in the tourniquet studies, um, surgical, you know, free radical yeah. production goes up, you do yep. see lactate go up. And so, you know, that, that is something that, that we would definitely think we see. But yeah, I, I think if, if we're to start designing more cell swelling studies, in these very acute settings where you can't do anything, um, we really would want to talk about personalizing it and, and can we go uh, go ahead and do 100%? Because yeah. that's a problem. You can, when you do exercise and you're 100% occlusion, when you're doing it right, like with a surgical gray tourniquet, it's, it's freaking nearly impossible. It is so hard. Um, yeah. you know, I, I remember Ben oh, Brock Stratton, <laughs> I mean, we, we had the pressure up high on him. He did, you know, try it and he got through like one set. Um, and so it's, it's hard. Um, but if you're not doing exercise, you could definitely get up into a hundred percent. I think, although yep. in one of Jeremy's papers, they had one person drop out, um, doing cell swelling cause he said he got nauseous. So <laughs> you'll have, you'll have some people that can't tolerate it just no matter what. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you got on Kubota guys that y'all want to, that's our last Kubota we have here, but that's our, so far we're 1996 Hossinger, um, 2000 Takarada ACL showed promise. 2007 Kubota um, showed with high pressure, really, really interesting, pretty good stuff. 2010 lower pressure still had some good stuff, but not as good as a high pressure. And then we go into Jeremy's paper in 2012, the acute muscle swelling effects on blood flow restriction. And so his hypothesis here was we, we hypothesized that BFR would result in a decrease in plasma volume and an increase in muscle thickness without a measurable change in whole blood lactate. So again, this is whole blood lactate, not local, um, or muscle activation. And so 
the spirit of this study is can we show that we really moved the fluid, the plasma volume shifted, the fluid went into the muscle fiber. And also were we able to see that yes, those, those muscle metabolites weren't at least systemically increased as well as if you look at EMG signal that we're not creating some weird muscle activation from this, which, which is interesting because that was, you know, when, when Dr. Lambert and I were talking about his, shoulder paper that we're finishing up, um, seeing an increased EMG signal, is, is the tourniquet creating an EMG signal? And that's why we're seeing it go up higher. Um, and so this is a nice paper to kind of reference to, to, to say, no, it doesn't look like it. But they, they use a narrow tourniquet on this one, which Jeremy doesn't use anymore. Five minute bouts of inflation with three minutes of deflation um, between each bout for, for five rounds. So kind of the same standard protocol, which I think we should get into too. I'm not sure if you have to do five rounds um, based on kind of where we see with IPC and everything, but, but we just don't know. They use ultrasound uh, to measure for thickness changes and, and they did have some good references and some validity that that, that can be comparable to MRI if you're looking for um, these, these muscle volume changes they're looking at. They saw significant increases in muscle thickness um, in both the vasti lateralis and the rectus femoris. Um, and a significant decrease in plasma volume. So that plasma volume shifted, the muscle actually was having swelling within the muscle fiber. They didn't do biopsy and directly measure muscle cell swelling. So we can't say that, but we can say that the fluid moved out from the plasma volume into the muscle fiber itself. EMG, there was no increase in EMG signal at all, and there was no increase in lactate. So. This was a true swelling effect without the increase in muscle metabolites. Thoughts on this, guys? Well, it's the first kind of evidence that there is some sort of a fluid shift into the muscle, which is kind of nice. I mean, that, that's maybe hypothesized from the Kubota and Takarata papers, but nobody had really looked at it until Jeremy did to say, yeah. okay, there is actually something happening there. And he says BFR may increase the hydrostatic pressure gradient, which would create this intracellular water influx. So he's going more with, yeah, we got a hydrostatic pressure that's doing this and, and don't go there with your metabolite stuff. Yeah. Those early, the Kubota papers in Takarata, it's all like, we know you get a metabolite from this. We know you get a metabolite from BFR. We think it's metabolite. So they were probably kind of barking up the wrong tree. Um, at least from a BFR metabolite, like, like Zach said, it might be an ischemia metabolite um, is created this ion exchange, which there probably is some, but this looks like it's an actual pressure thing as well as not just the pressure when the tourniquet's on. So you're building up all this pressure, the fluid has to go somewhere, but also this massive reperfusion um, that you get when you deflate the cuff, we think also creates a fluid shift as well. Right? Yeah. So this wasn't about what does it do for preserving muscle? This was about does the, does the, the water actually move? Yep, it moves. Um, and so I, I think we can all agree with that. And again, anyone that's done BFR enough, people get done, you're like, yeah, you got some water in that leg that's, that's moved into the muscle. I mean, even when you push on the muscle, it just feels way more taut. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's got that pump effect that you see from, from lifting heavy weights. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? I've always thought that one of the interesting things about that paper is the difference in the distension of the rectus femoris versus the vastus lateralis. 
there was a definite difference there. And within that paper, they kind of conjecture that maybe the two joint um, anatomy of the rectus femoris might kind of play into that, which seems to maybe kind of point back to what Zach was talking about with the hamstring muscles in the Kubota paper. Um, but Zach actually, you, he found, you found a paper on that, that two joint muscle kind of rationale as to why that might be a thing. It didn't make any sense to me when I read it, Zach, but it, you know, explain yeah. it to me. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily go into the explanation. It was just another observation of, um, individuals that, um, in the middle. So one of the things that bodybuilders will, will do, and they think that helps is in between their sets, they'll do these isometric contractions. And so it was just published in frontiers in January. And what they did was they had one group just did rest in between their sets. And then another group did posing exercises. So they would hold a, a pose say for a minute and they would alternate between bicep, bicep flex or um, an isometric quad set type of an exercise. And they didn't find any real changes in any muscle except for the rectus femoris. And they found that there was a, a significant increase in rectus femoris size in the group that held these isometric contractions. And it, it's definitely interesting as to why it's, it's the rec fem versus the vastus lateralis. Um, yeah. and, and I don't, I don't know. I know Steve Patterson has alluded to it being a, a blood flow thing. You know, maybe there's just right. better blood supply to the musculature there as opposed to, um, you know, the other areas of the quad. Yeah. yeah they, if you go, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's actually, that, that's, they, they've shown that like the distal portion of the VL has less perfusion. Yeah. yeah. So there, there, it very well could be that. Yeah. I wish they found better results with the posing in that Frontiers paper because when I'm at the gym, that's exactly my workout. I do a, a set and then I pose yeah. like big time yeah. and then I do another set and I pose. And it's mostly just biceps, so I'm doing a lot of bicep yeah. poses. Yeah, um, I've been waiting for you to put that on IG Live or Facebook Live. <laughs> yeah, tune in but, next week know. for Johnny's IG Live of his posing. Even though, even though the results weren't good. great, I'm going to keep doing my posing. Um, Makes me feel good, so, you know. Yeah. In fact, well, the worst thing about COVID is I can't go to the gym and do my posing exercises anymore because I, I can't do them by myself. I need people around watching. <laughs> well, so one thing on, on this Linicky paper, you know, they actually had a, a, a follow-up to this like a year later, him and Jacob Wilson, uh, they did a, a practical BFR with, with knee wraps. So obviously not a, a whole lot, uh, you know, to be understood on the pressure side of things, but they did this with exercise and looked at the acute swelling of the muscle and just compared low load versus low load with the knee wraps and found a significant difference in muscle size afterward, but it was really short lived. You know, it was basically right after one minute later, five minutes later, but by 10 minutes it was gone. Um, and, and so, you know, they also, of course, because it was exercise showed increased lactate showed increased muscle activation with the knee wraps versus non knee wraps. Uh, but it, it made me think about, you know, when we see people do this with the 80% pressure on the leg, and do an exercise that's at a higher intensity, like that 20 to 30%, something like a squat movement or a lunge, and having that, that kind of swelling response. And it sticks around for a while. I mean, it's, it's beyond that five-minute mark. So, you know, it definitely seems like there is something pressure-dependent there um, and kind of takes me back to that, that discussion from a little bit earlier on, 
you know, how much pressure do you really need to maximize this kind of swelling response in the muscle, whether it's with exercise or without. So I'll I'll never forget when, I mean, when we had Johnny out here in 2015 and I did, I think I was the volunteer and I went for it with like a 10 pound long arc quad or something. And my leg was uh, 30% of your max. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I went for some high pressure BFR. That was, that was back when I had some semblance of fitness. Um, and, uh, but, but my leg was swollen for like a half hour afterward. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt swollen for, for that long. So yeah, it hangs around for a while. Yeah. And some people weigh more than others. You know, that picture I have of that, the guy from the Houston Rockets his leg was just like, I thought it was going to freaking pop if I put a pin in it. Um, he was just swelling up so much. Um, and, and so I, I do want to point out, because we haven't really gone, we're understanding, okay, there's a swelling happens, um, and it seems to preserve muscle somehow. Hossinger said, um, you know, that it, there's anabolism once the muscle swells. And so Jeremy followed up that study and put out kind of a more of a review and, and why we think this happens. We can go a little bit deeper on it. But the cell swelling signaling cascade is that we speculate that during BFR, Muscle swelling, cell swelling is detected by the intrinsic volume sensor. So that's Hossinger's theory. So there's a volume sensor, it notices the cell swelling. And JMK is the most responsive to that mechanical tension, has been linked to a rapid rise of mRNA transcription factors. And so JMK mRNA is a downstream target of the JMK pathway, and that's been observed to be increased 30 minutes after the onset of the cell swelling. So you get this swelling effect. There's a volume sensor that, that it's on the cell. It's like, whoa, I'm swelling. And then J&K seems to respond to that. And I know J&K is like one of Zach's favorite things um, beyond VEGF. So, you know, he wants to be in a room by himself with a VEGF molecule and a J&K molecule. And a penumbra. I feel like a penumbra. At some point we need a podcast of, and it's Zach's favorite things. Like that's our podcast. It's a very lonely, sad <laughs> And everyone just plays it at night to go to sleep to. <laughs> so, but Zach, okay, so that's mechanism. Kyle, Kyle speak for yourself. There's people who, who would love that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, just speak, yeah. speak for yourself there yeah. fourfold, Kyle. Yeah. So go into a little bit, if you want, Zach, of what do you think on this, okay, J&K gets activated, and that's map yeah. K. And- yeah, so, um, you know, when, when we look at J&K, which is um, one of the map Ks, um, we, we see that responds not just to mechanical stress, but it responds to this kind of osmotic stress as well and this stress on the cytoskeleton. And then from there, you know, because everything that we've looked at so far with cell swelling says it doesn't produce, it doesn't um, basically maintain muscle mass or increase hypertrophy. All we're really doing is attenuating atrophy. And so one of the things that these MAPKs will do, it, it is, it's been shown that it'll inhibit the uh, proteolytic or this muscle protein breakdown pathway. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that it'll, it'll completely reverse it, but what we think may actually be going on here is it puts the brakes on the pathway. So we, it slows the decline. Um, and then JNK and these MAPKs will also have been shown to kind of increase mTOR, this muscle protein synthetic pathway as well. So it's, it's a kind of these... Um, these MAPKs or protein kinases are really good if we can upregulate them and it gives us a mechanistic um, pathway to explain the changes that we do see. Yeah, so we might be more proteolysis moving now. 
you know, where we're like, yeah, it's all mTOR and we're seeing an increase in protein synthetic rates. Well, no, maybe it's, we're just slowing the breakdown side. Yeah. And, and then one of the other things too is that this paper was just recently published and it was, it was in a, the rodent model, but um, we see that JNK actually limits the movement of myostatin into the nucleus. And so one of the important things and why that, that may be relevant is because when we, what we're seeing now is when we go on just a week long step reduction, we see a significant spike in myostatin. Yeah. My, myostatin, um, not only we have this fibrotic response, but it actually is important with the proteolytic pathway as well um, yeah. when it moves into the nucleus. So if we upregulate these MAPKs, this may be the driver that actually we're um, putting the brakes on, so to speak, yeah. to limit the amount of atrophy. And everything we're seeing, myostatin goes up in injury models, myostatin goes up in disuse models, myostatin will definitely slow down the ability to, to have muscle or preserve muscle. So that stretch might just be this MAPK is, is kind of one of the keys and JNK being sensitive to the stretch receptor. So that might yeah. be a mechanism. Okay. Um, so moving on then with our history here, the next is done in 2015. And this one, um, Iverson's group or Iverson's lead author, I don't know these folks, intermittent blood flow restriction does not reduce atrophy following ACL reconstruction. Um, you guys thoughts on this one. So this one, one they did it and said, you know what? It didn't. Um, had a significant change if you if you did this kind of cell swelling protocol. So you guys, I know y'all had some thoughts on this study, maybe what, what it said and then what you think are maybe some problems. Yeah, well, I mean, in that, that paper, they, they say they specifically designed it to try to reproduce the Takarata results because Takarata had shown some positive things for just applying this restriction in a, in a repeated fashion after ACL reconstruction. But, the, but their methods didn't really match up with Takarata. I think one of the key things that we all picked up on was they kind of just like rigged up some sort of a way to inflate the cuff. Um, they, they took a Delphi cuff, but attached a hand pump to it in some kind of fashion. It said it was a dual port cuff. So we don't even really know, like, you know, were they only inflating one chamber or are they getting both or, um, but then they added exercise and you know if they've just kind of attached a hand pump cuff to it then we know that the muscle pump is going to push some of the air out of that cuff anyway uh, and then they started with a relatively low pressure 130 millimeters of mercury and they increased it uh, 10 millimeters of mercury every two days so started day two with 130 did 132 rounds that day next day 130 then on the third day went up to 140 so they were really not up to that higher pressure um, until you know the last few days of that study so they likely missed a really important window in terms of really hitting that pressure um, and in using the pressure from the cuff to help attenuate some of that atrophy yeah we tried actually in the early days to just put some sort of pump onto a surgical cuff, it doesn't work. Um, it, when we did it at Center for the Intrepid, it, it just loses pressure rapidly. It's not able to maintain that sort of pressure. And then again, if you have a dual, a dual port, <laughs> you got one port 
that's got something on it in the other port that doesn't or who knows what they did. So yeah, it's hard to know where they, even if they started these low pressures and built up were like everything, were they able to maintain pressures with it? So, so that, that is kind of one of those problems we think we see with it still. Um, that one is the first one that didn't see any changes. But again, there might be some limitations to that study of, of why they did it. Um, pressures probably weren't high enough and not using something that controlled the pressure. Any other thoughts on the Iverson one before we move on? Okay, then. The next one is in 2018. And so this was an intensive care study um, done out of the, the, the guys out of Brazil. And so their hypothesis aim was to evaluate the addition of BFR to passive mobilizations in patients in the ICU. So they had 34 coma patients um, that they, they enrolled. Um, I, they only were able to end up with 20. You know, they, they had kind of dropouts in a study that I never see. Thank God and hopefully never will in my studies. Like we lost a, a, a subject to death, um, not from BFR, but just because these were such highly involved intensive care coma patients. And so it was a within um, study design crossover, or not crossover design, but within patient randomized trials. So they used one limb um, with, a, with a tourniquet on, did passive range, and the other limb without a tourniquet on and doing passive range to see if they could pick up a difference uh, because it would be really hard to randomize between people in the ICU potentially. Um, and so they, they did fall, start to get more into our world now where they used 80% um, um, arterial occlusion pressure, or limb, limb occlusion pressure in this one. And, and their main outcome measurements were thigh muscle thickness and circumference. And so it's kind of different ranges of how long, based on how long the people are in the ICU, they were able to do it. Uh, both groups, atroph both limbs atrophied as you would expect, uh, but the atrophy rate was significantly lower in the BFR limb compared to the control limb. So around 2% millimeter loss in the BFR limb, 2.8% um, in, the, in the control limb, and thigh circumference overall, 2.5% loss in the BFR side, 3.6% loss in the control side. Those, those were big enough numbers that those was 0 0.001 significance. So from a significance perspective, very significant. Uh, rate of muscle wasting was 6.5% lower, basically, if you just put a tourniquet on at 80% limb occlusion pressure. Um, and so basically their, their main results showed the BFR uh, groups presented significantly less muscle wasting. The occluded limb shows statistically lower muscle loss in comparison to the non-included limb that both receive passive range of motion. And our results are in agreement with others that have previously been reported. Oh, wait, sorry, that's, that's not what I want to say right here. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's kind of it, what I had from their, their kind of quotes there. So. Anything that you guys want to add or, or thoughts on this one? So this one's getting more um, like the design, personalized it to each person. This was truly, truly a passive clinical population. They're under sedation. They can't do any active stuff. And this was a true cell swelling preservation. What do you guys think on that? I went back and, and reread that one, um, just trying to get into some of the details. And for their personalization, I'm questioning if it was a limb occlusion pressure or more of a specific arterial occlusion pressure because they did yeah. anterior tibial artery and they called it 80% of systolic. So I think it's still, you know, personalized and I'm kind of, you know, they just didn't tell us how they there. figured that, you know, it's like, yeah. was it palpation? Was it Doppler ultrasound? 
was it auscultation? Yeah. They didn't. They just didn't tell us how they. Seems like most of what that. these guys have been doing has been Doppler of, of yeah. the, of oh, the arteries. So it's not a, a true limb occlusion. You know, it's right. a superficial artery. So they're probably not really, um, from what we understand, at a limb occlusion. They're at this superficial arterial occlusion. But it's more personalized than any other study that yeah, we've absolutely. seen so far. Yeah, and I'm, it was, I'm just being picky there. It was no, relatively shorter duration inflations, I, I would expect, just given the passive mobilization, three sets of 15, two seconds up, two seconds down, that kind of only gets you to about three and a half, maybe four minutes um, yeah. versus the versus like the Linicky and Kubota and Takarata papers were at five minutes. So, um, well, that's true. And so less time. And also it was only once a day. Yeah, um, right. So that's good, you know, because a lot of these, we talk to this stuff and the teams and the DOD and everyone's like, yeah, I, I can do this, you know, twice a day or I can do it every day. Um, we need more trials to start taking the frequency down to see if we still get these results for the, for the clinics out there that don't have the luxury of, I, I get this patient all day in my clinic. But good, good results. That's very, you know, for my PACER project, this kind of stuff to have a study like this out there already that they're doing this on coma patients um, and able to preserve muscle is promising that we might be able to get a trial going to look at the COPD ventilatory patients. Um, cool. Any other thoughts there, guys, before we move on? Mm -mm. So that is pretty much all the BFR specific cell swelling papers that we have. So I like the kind of history of how it started and when. I do want to bring up um, a paper um, that was put out um, in 2018, resistance exercise induced fluid shifts, change in active muscle size and plasma volume. So this was um, Dr. Pluitt Snyder, who's done quite a bit of BFR work, um, has done stuff with, with NASA. Uh, she and Roland actually did a BFR talk at the, uh, I think it was the NFL Combine years ago. Um, and then I, I didn't notice it till I read it last night. Vic Convertino is on it as well. And he was one of our lead scientists. And he still is at the ISR here at our base. Um, he's got a freaking crazy bio. He's, he was with NASA. He still is with NASA. He's faculty at six different schools. Um, and, and so Vic's kind of the, the main guy that understands plasma volume fluid shifts. He, he did a lot of that work for us at the ISR. He was also around and helping um, when we were first starting BFR. But basically what they did is they had people do squats and measured what muscles were active during those squats. And then after the squats and, and right after, I think 45 minutes later, and I forget how much longer after that, they did T, uh, T2 MRIs to see where, what muscles were actually full of fluid after that. So was there a cell swelling that happened when you exercise your muscles? And the muscles that were active, so the, the vasti and the adductors were significantly swollen on those MRIs. The muscles that weren't active, um, the rectus and the hamstring did not have any significant swelling. And so they were able to measure, there was about 22% of plasma volume that was, that was lost somewhere. And about 14% of that they picked up in the vast eyes and the adductor muscles. Um, well funded, this was a NASA funded study, so they were able to get really good imaging here. And so their point was there's an increase in muscle cross sectional area immediately post exercise. And this supports the notion that increased muscle size after resistant exercise reflects primarily fluid movement from the vascular space into the active muscles, but not the active muscles. So, point being, 
when you exercise, the muscles that are being targeted that are active swell. And the ones that aren't active don't swell. So there's cell swelling that happens from exercise only in those active muscles. You don't see it everywhere else. And so then it kind of brings it around full circle. Cell swelling, if we're forcing there to be swelling in muscles, is this an artificial mimicking of active exercise? Is that really what we're doing at the end of the day? What do you guys think on that? It makes sense yeah. to me. I mean, and I would think you could potentially, you know, it, it makes me think you could target a response with what we've talked about, adding something like an e-stem. If you're not, if you don't have somebody that you can do good voluntary controlled movement with exercise, you know, could you kind of force this fluid shift in, in a particular space by adding some muscle contraction with something like an, an NMES application? Right. Yeah. And again, like Jeremy's paper showed, just putting the tourniquet on, we force swelling within the muscle. Well, only the active muscles are the ones that swell when you exercise. So if I go do curls, bicep curls, I'm going to swell. That's the muscle that's going to change. My triceps won't swell and it's not going to change. So you got to target the swelling at the specific muscle. And so when we're doing these passive protocols, you're thinking I'm, I'm just pushing fluid into this disused limb to give it an artificial exercise, you know? Again, what's amazing if we're t thinking about a ventilatory patient um, or, or even our post-op patients right early on. Any other thoughts on that paper, guys, before we kind of wrap it up here? No, that was good. What's the, what's the consensus then? We don't just do cell swelling by itself unless you've got a patient that can't freaking move or can't do e-stem right? Yes. So if you're in the ICU or we get a grant, we start doing this COVID trial. Yeah. We're, we're looking at this and how do we do a higher pressure, maybe even a hundred percent to see if we can induce this, this potential swelling. Most people in the clinic add an exercise to it, add E-STEM to it. Exercise could be freaking ankle pumps. It could be isometrics, something to get active muscle contraction because when the contraction starts, then we get, the metabolites and then you get the ion exchange and you're probably forcing it more and it's like ben said go do a split squat with a tourniquet on you freaking are swole we're swole yo and that swelling is probably because you got so much metabolites that ion exchange really really forced the fluid to move in there and you're getting hossinger's work to kick in and then um as you can start to get them off of this protocol get them off we probably need higher pressures. I think we all agree. And we've been saying that with all of our other work, Jeremy's and my paper lessons from the lab. That's what we said. If you can do almost no load, you better use a higher pressure. And if you can, I would do this frequently. If you can do it twice a day early on, twice a day or daily, get it going. And lastly, we probably need at least three rounds of this, right? Three at a minimum. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would say at the minimum, um, yeah. And I would, but it's hard, man. Go do I, I did one of my labs. Uh, I'm here at Tripler. We did this. Someone's like, let's try that protocol. We had a, one of the, one of the folks there do five different mat exercises for their first lab. <laughs> almost killed them, man. They were dying, dying. And they almost had no weight on it. It was so hard. So again, don't be like, well, yeah, the Owens guy said I should start this five times with my post-op patient they might need to build up, you know, one or two times at the start. I would rather start with less exercise, but a higher pressure at the start. 
Like I, don't, I wouldn't start like, let's start real low pressure and build you up and do three or four exercises. I would go for the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think the easiest way to, to think about it and look at it and implement it in the clinic is all this is a continuum. And so if we take that individual, whether they're in the ICU or that immediate post-op total knee, whatever the case may be, you do what you can do. And so if that's just cell swelling, then that's just cell swelling. If it's cell swelling with stem, then we do cell swelling with stem. From there, we progress as, as much as we can to doing exercise. Um, and, and what I would say, and I think, you know, Kyle, we talked about this before, um, we do the exercise portion first. And so whatever they can do exercise wise is what we do, like straight leg raises, all that. And then at the very end of the treatment is when I would do a cell swelling or a combination of cell swelling with stem and then progressing away from cell swelling as soon as you can. And I think that then true is true with BFR. It's progressing away from BFR as soon as we can. As soon as that individual tolerates load and we can start loading them and we start loading them and, you know, we're, we're kind of moving away from BFR. And that's just how the continuum of care, um, how we yeah. look at it. Yeah. Get them off the tourniquet because if you're doing it right, you got another patient waiting for that tourniquet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think you make this um, even more feasible and, I think it's hard to say for sure, but I think more powerful if you can get these people in preoperatively, because yeah. one of the things you do is you get them familiar with having that, that tourniquet on what it feels like that sort of thing. So that that day, that first day when they come in post-op, you're able to do a heck of a lot more than you typically would do on a first visit where you're just getting to know the person and, and you're introducing them to this thing and they're like, this freaking guy wants to put a tourniquet on my leg. Like I'm, I don't know that I'm, you know, I'm, I don't know these people know what they're doing, but if you have these people beforehand and you're working with them, hopefully you're putting a bit of muscle on them, a bit of strength before, before they even go into surgery. And you're also familiarizing them with this pressure. And, and I would think probably the last few visits, you really kind of use a higher pressure just so that they understand, what's going on so that when they come in that first day, you can really accomplish something. I, I tell this story when I teach these courses of a guy that I've treated preoperatively for ACL reconstruction and then postoperatively. And I, you know, I, I have a whole story about him, but you know, cutting it really short, the, the first day he came in, I put five inflations on him at 80 to hundred percent restriction with either some passive range because I was just trying to make the, the, the visit go fast um, and some neuromuscular stem. And so we really got after it. And the thing for me that happened with him that, you know, might point back to, yeah, that's my fantasy land, Zach. Exactly. Well, I'm not giving you the whole fantasy land. Like you got, if you want to learn Kyle's fantasy land, you have to come take one of my courses. If you want to see my bit mode, keep, keep, all around. Yeah, you're in the middle of a story. Keep it going. I want to hear the end of this. Of courses. So at any rate, this guy comes in and I, we really got after it. Um, this dude was in a ton of pain. He had a horrible, he had horrible range of motion because he'd done nothing for three weeks post-op ACL. Um, but he knew what to expect when he came in with regard to BFR. So I was very limited on time. Um, what I did was I got one round of just working on his flexion on the table with BFR. So we did 100%. Then I put him on our biodex. And I had him just do passive range on there for uh, another five minute stretch with BFR. And then I flexed him at 60 degrees and we 
shocked the snot out of his quad for three rounds of five minutes at, at near full occlusion. And the thing that happened with him that I was going to say really kind of points back to, to Luke's work is when he pulled his leg out of that bidex, like I unstrapped him and he lifted it up. He got it maybe six inches out of that thing. He looks back at me and he's like, Oh man, what'd you just do? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, my leg feels better than it has these three weeks. And I'm like, freaking right. Go pay your copay, buddy. <laughs> you know, cause if that doesn't yeah. give you buy-in, but also like this guy, when he came in the next visit, he was feeling tons better. And it had, it seemed to have everything to do with what I did with BFR with him. Cause he was still not feeling good after me working on his range and that sort of thing. Um, and so that was, that was pretty cool to see. He was the day, the next day he came back in, Two days later, more weight bearing, better range of motion. His knee wasn't quite as effused. It was really kind of an interesting and um, sort of convincing result for me to be like, okay, I got to really maybe get after these people a bit harder than I have been. I've been babying them a little bit too much. Yeah, I agree. Don't be afraid. Cool, man. Anything else, fellas? All right. If you guys, um, if, if you want to learn more about us, go to owenscreverysciencecom uh, Our courses are not happening right this moment. We do have courses scheduled throughout the rest of the year. Um, hopefully we're not having to cancel those. So if you're interested, we're gonna have courses, uh, I, I think in June still, we'll see. Um, we're, we're, we're cutting them back all the time, but, but we're gonna have quite a few, I think, at the end of the year. We'll, we'll all be traveling freaking third and fourth quarter for sure. All right, guys, I'm gonna go cut the rest of my hair. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't look like a weird Mahomes right now. Thanks for everything. Talk to y'all soon. All right, All right, you guys. guys. Take it easy. Yep, bye. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.